Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, Cycling in Alignment listeners. I'm so grateful you're back. Today's fireside chat is with two gentlemen from Enduro Bearings, founder Matt Harvey and director of business development Rick Sutton. Today we're going to discuss all the things about Enduro Bearings. You're going to learn about how bearings are made, why Enduro Bearings are so amazing, and how their XD15 and Max Hit bottom brackets have a lifetime guarantee. You'll get to know why that's the case. Also, in some very exciting news, I'm proud to announce that I am an Enduro Ambassador. And that means I get to rock all their stuff on all my whips, including my new custom mosaic, which I'm going to tell you all about in an upcoming podcast. It's going to have some videos and some photos and some cool stuff, which will show you the amazing paint job they're doing and why I made the component choices I made, including the Enduro bearings bottom bracket headset that will be installed on said whip. For me, the bearing choices are pretty simple in my life. I want the bearings to work perfectly and require zero maintenance in an ideal world. And this is the world of enduro bearings. So I'm pretty excited about this. Also, not to be missed, I have an exclusive offer that you will want to take advantage of. But in order to take advantage of this exclusive offer, you've got to listen to the end of the pod. And in the outro, which is sort of like the evil opposite twin of the intro, I will place said details and you can go forth and make the internet entries to gain a prosperous discount on your purchase at cycling.endurobearings.com. I'll tell you all the details when you get to the outro. There's a coupon code and you'll want to stick around for it. This offer is good for all Enduro bearings products, not just their bearings, but also their headsets, bottom brackets, and derailleur pulley jockey wheels. So go forth and click the internet. Do so after you enjoy our discussion. Thanks for listening. Welcome listeners to Cycling in Alignment. Today, I've got two special guests from Enduro Bearings, Matt Harvey and Rick Sutton. Matt and Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yeah. Hello, Colby. Nice to chat again. Nice to chat again. Um, Rick and I worked together on the Wave Bar, the Coefficient Bar project, back when he was with that company, and now he's moved on to Enduro, and I get the awesome opportunity to work with him again here. So today we're going to talk to Rick and Matt about Enduro Bearings. They're going to tell us a little bit about their product. And Matt, I'd like to start with you unpacking a bit about your journey. Like, how do you how do you get so involved in bicycle bearings? What's the story, man? Yeah, uh, I was definitely involved with bicycles early on since I was a kid, teenager in bike shops and so forth. Um, bearings wasn't what I was aiming for at that point, but uh, after working at White Industries and um, which, you know, they were using bearings in their hubs, obviously, and Fisher mountain bikes and Bianchi bicycles, uh, I had quite a bit of experience with it. But uh, it was at Fisher with suspension pivot bearings that I got a real taste, I think, of, of trying to figure out 
the uh, shortcomings of bushings compared to bearings and rear pivots. And uh, at simultaneously, my business partner now was making bearings for forklifts, older forklift trucks that you couldn't find them for anymore in uh, over in Emeryville in the East Bay. And uh, <clears throat> I started doing drawings for him for bearings, um, mostly, you know, uh, uh, trying to figure out old bearings and making new versions of them. And he was machining them. And so we kind of just came together that the bicycle industry uh, was really starting to use a lot of cartridge bearings. This is the late nineties. And uh, so we took a chance and um, uh, made a, made a business without really, uh, you know, knowing if it was going to work, you know, it could have been washed out in a year or two, but uh, Mm. both sides took off. So now we supply a lot of forklift bearings worldwide for all sorts of applications, industrial bearings. We're into mm-hmm. forklift is the main content there, but industrial bearings and, uh, and then the bicycle bearings. And what's, what's unusual is, or what is uh, a fact is that forklift bearings, the ones that we make, they're so-called mass guide bearings. They're, uh, they move really slow and they take very high loads and they're not uh, um, dissimilar from bicycle bearings in almost every case. Cause we're always looking for the lightest bearing on a bicycle that can take the highest load. Cause we don't want to add any extra weight. So that's there. And then they're out in the elements, both types of bearings. So you have to look at greases and materials and uh, you know, water, seawater for a forklift at a port or when you're riding your downhill bike up in Canada, you know, and you power wash it, what, all, all those things are, are actually quite similar. So uh, the technology we've borrowed back and forth from both industries, actually, mm. in some cases. So, okay, so this is the late 90s. This is when cartridge bearings are are becoming a thing in cycling, right? And it sounds like you were part of that movement. I mean, I remember as a kid, I started racing in 1988 and my, you know, air quotes training rides were riding from Broomfield, Colorado to Boulder to gawk at the components cases at performance bike. <laughs> they had right. these glass cases, you know, I was like, Ooh, Durace campy, you yeah. know? And they had some brands that were carrying cartridge bearings, sealed cartridge bearings. And mm-hmm. the, the marketing speak back then was a sealed cartridge bearing is lower maintenance because it's a sealed unit. So the bearing is contained. It's got races, inner and outer races contained with rubberized seals on the sides and it's pre-lubricated. So in theory, you just never needed to overhaul your hubs. And back then overhauling hub was like a thing. It was like, mm-hmm. I mean, the sport was different back then because people used to nail their own cleats on. They used to, um, you know, some people used to fix their own tubular tires. Like yeah. for those of you who don't know, that means literally unstitching the casing, taking out the old tube, replacing it, restitching the casing. It was like this fine art, right? There were all these things that arguably led you to a much more intimate relationship with your bike. And one of those was repacking your hub bearings and your bottom bracket bearings. And it Mm -hmm. was a very simple process, right? It's like you take out the bottom bracket axle and there are bearings that are just exposed that ride right on the axle and then the cup and cone. And you adjusted the tension of the bearings and very carefully had this process where you cleaned everything and you probably used all kinds of kerosene and toxic stuff. And, and then you inspected the races and replaced the bearings and kept the axle or whatever. Right. So right. cartridge bearings was this revolution because it theoretically did away with that. 
Yeah, and, and they had been around for a while. I, you know, SKF cartridge bearings in bottom brackets goes back to the 40s. And uh, even um, when I was at Fisher Mountain Bikes, we were putting cartridge bearings into the bottom brackets. And, and uh, but you're right, it relatively, there was a change from cup and cone setup over to cartridge bearings around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the challenge is, it's when you put cartridge bearings, uh, well, let's back up, especially into suspension pivots, mm-hmm. they have a certain amount of internal clearance that they're given. So there's a little bit of play in every cartridge bearing. Mm-hmm. And what that clearance is, is, is given by the, the factory. And it's usually a little too much for a suspension pivot bearing. So you'd put them into suspension pivots and they'd kind of wag, you know, they were loose almost immediately after you rode them um, because they would seat and then you'd, you didn't want that. So the first thing we were working on were pivot bearings that wouldn't wag or be loose. So uh, in the forklift industry, there's this type of bearing called a max bearing that uh, has existed for a hundred years, but nobody made them in small sizes. So we, we simply took that over to a small size uh, bicycle bearing, but also decreased the amount of internal clearance. So they're tighter. Mm-hmm. And, and we made special seals for them because same thing, rain, and mm-hmm. water, and then filled them almost completely with grease, which is unusual from a bearing factory. Usually when you buy those bearings you were talking about off the shelf from back in those days, it was like King bearing. You'd go in there and pay a lot of money for a little cartridge bearing. And uh, they're only filled uh, 20 to 35% with uh, grease on one side. So because those bearings are usually expected to go really high speed, like thousands of RPM, Uh but in a pivot, it just goes, you know, seven degrees back and forth. So you just want really high pressure, thick grease in there that not only um, protects the bearing, but acts as a uh, kind of a shock absorber between the ball and the race. Okay. So they last last longer. And also because of the lower rate of what, what's the word I'm looking for? lower number of degrees per second of use of rotation, you can get away yeah. with less, more grease. Cause if you put too much grease in a high speed bearing the thing would just catch on fire. Right. Or, or the yeah, grease would well, light on fire. What well, sometimes happen? the motor won't start because there's too much grease in there. Uh-huh. Um, and then too much also, resistance. Yeah. And then the grease comes out and goes right into the brushes or the magnets of, of the motor. <laughs> all the things so, you don't want it to, all the places you don't want it to go. Yeah. So it fouls the motor. Okay. Know, so, Okay. The, and the other problem, if you think about it, you get these cartridge bearings off the shelf and they haven't been spun at the factory. So that little grease fill is just on one side. If you put it into the pivot and without ever having spun it, the grease isn't mixed around. So uh, yeah. there's no grease in like uh, half the bearing. Right. So the balls are just metal on metal. And then, you know, your bearing's going to last about a week or something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's what we kind of specifically... Well, we were looking at hub bearings too at simultaneously. I think our first customer was White Industries because they had that relationship. And so we started working on, um, on uh, started going back and forth with Doug White, who's a really smart, um, <clears throat> number one, a machinist. He was a machinist at United Airlines for years and uh, obviously a talented uh, uh, component maker. And uh, so I picked his brain about hub bearings quite a bit and uh you know he kind of helped me in the beginning 
get this thing going too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the other discussions that I'm sure you can help educate me on, uh, is the orientation or a lot of the discussion around cup and cone versus cartridge bearings is dealing with radial load. Right. And please correct right. me if I'm using the wrong terminology here. I'll just do the best I can to, to explain it. But you know, if you're riding in a straight line down a straight road, then most of the force is basically it's forward. It's in the sagittal plane. We might say it's the direction of the bike and then it's gravity pushing down. So if you have a bearing that can handle that load, then it's going to work fine. But as soon as you take a corner or you ride on a velodrome where there's a lot of twisting force, or you're riding down a trail and you've got twisting force in the suspension pivots, right? Mm -hmm. Then a bearing that has races that are the internal and external race are vertical, vertically stacked over the bearing may not be able to handle that twisting force as well as at least this is the discussion as I understand it as a cup and cone bearing, because a cup and cone bearing, the internal cup is sort of at about a 45 degree angle from the center of the bearing and the external cup, the cone, uh, sorry, the cup. Yeah. Is on the external side of the bearing at about a 45 degree angle. So it's sort of an angular. So in theory, a cup and cone can handle those forces, um, better or they but, can. Um, and we make angular contact cartridge bearings actually as right, well. Right. And, um, so what happens, you're right in many senses, a radial bearing is there, as I mentioned before, there's play in it. So at any given time, only about, uh, uh, 35% of the bearing is taking the load. If you will, the mm -hmm. other balls are floating over mm -hmm. the top and, um, um, spinning but they're they're floating essentially and then they come into taking uh, the load uh a angular contact bearing you pre-load it so all the bearings are always engaged so right. they're all rolling so at any given time in an angular contact bearing you've got more load carrying capacity all the time because all of the balls are engaged and contrary to some, what some people say well isn't doesn't that mean they take less load because the, uh, you know, of the angle? And it's like, no, the force will go right through. Yeah. The load bearing will go straight through at that angle mm -hmm. in, in, in the angular contact bearing. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter. You know, if you, if you have a 15 degree angular contact bearing or a 45 degree angular contact bearing, the load force goes through the, at the angle. Yeah, right. It's, the load doesn't just vaporize into the air. It has to go somewhere. So it's going right. to go wherever it has purchase. The question yeah. is whether that system can handle that load, right? Is that, right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So radial bearings, and then commonly people side load radial bearings. And, um, you know, there's designs in hubs where you preload the radial bearing. Mm -hmm. This can be okay if the races are deep enough and the balls are big enough. If you buy that bearing from King Bearing or whatever, you know, that's might go in your Hewlett Packard printer, <laughs> it might not be the right bearing to preload. In fact, you're now you're preloading it and the ball comes over. You can imagine if the race is really shallow, mm -hmm. the ball comes over and it's riding on an edge essentially. Yep. And there, and, and, uh, there's, it's, it's not only riding in the, in the wrong part of the bearing, it's only getting maybe half the, uh, uh, um, surface area to ride on. Yep. So it, it's going to wear out and then you keep retightening your hub because it's getting loose again. And, and you're pushing it, it further and further. It's like you're pushing the inside race 
out from under the outside race is the way I'm thinking yeah. about it. And then the bearing is just trying to do the best it can to stay aligned in between those two races. Yeah. yeah. And you're just wearing it out. Right. Really more fast. quickly. That's why, they, that's why they tell you not to preload radial bearings. Usually mm. for, for us, we do have some designs where we have a really deep groove and it's tricky. There's some things on how to make it, but anyway, you have a really deep groove with larger balls mm-hmm. and um, you can, in some cases, some of our radial bearings uh, preload them. Um, mm-hmm. But for like bottom brackets, we, we make them 15 degree angular contact. So the ball has maximum um, surface area to roll on. Uh, bottom brackets especially is probably the hardest duty for bearings just because of, you know, your, your pedaling motion, which is, um, is, is not um, perfect radial or uh smooth power I'm, into the transmission. Mine you know. is. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen you pedal, so I, I bet you're a s- smooth. Crystal cranks is one of spinner. my, one of my <laughs> nicknames, which could be seen positively or could be seen in other ways. But anyway, <laughs> now, if you look at my pedaling motion, which gets criticized, no, <laughs> you know, but we're all not perfect riders, but, yeah. but putting that power through the transmission, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of herky jerky. Mm. So you've, um, you got to have, uh, as, and, and you're always given, you know, such a small amount of space, space to put a, a bearing that's going to take all of the human load. I mean, think of yeah. Hugh Vanderpool putting down, you know, a thousand Watts into his, uh, through, through two little teeny bearings. Right. 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 That's a big ask, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, some of the designs are, uh, you know, you can imagine that guy, he's twisting that, you know, at the end of, of LaRoica last year, going up that sprint finish to the finish line. You mm-hmm. can imagine the bearings, um, if they're too small, they're pinching, they're skidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that guy can, I'd love to have like a little heat meter on his bearings mm-hmm. just to see what's going on. To see what's lost. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, he, that's another thing, you know, some people go for two light weight designs and sure you got a really light bike now, but you're putting all this power through a hub bearing or, a, or a bottom bracket bearing that starts to pinch and the balls start to skid because you're, mm-hmm. you have so much axial load yep. that the whole thing flexes. And when that happens, the ball can't roll anymore. It's skidding around the the race. Yep. yep. And, yep. uh, they could do for a heavier, a slightly heavier setup and, uh, they won't have a drag break on their bike anymore. Right. Pedaling up the hill. Well, and that's one of the reasons I think why Shimano refuses to use titanium axles in their pedals or their bottom brackets, right? Because they understand yeah. when, if you introduce a titanium axle, which is, is going to flex more and act like a spring, then every time yeah. you really hit it and you bend that axle, you're taking all the bearings, the races out of alignment, and you're introducing that that play, and it's either skidding or it's losing contact. And then when the axle springs back, then the bearing is going to recontact that axle, and it's almost going to be like a little impact each time, right? Am I thinking yep. about that the right way? So you it's are, just going to yeah. gall the the races more quickly, and everything's going to get just destroyed really fast. Yeah, exactly. And and to that point, your point about titanium axles when. Early on at White Industries, he was making titanium axles mm-hmm. and had that sort of phenomenon. And just same thing with the bearings. Um, there was so much flex in the axle that the bearings are just locking up. 
you know, it's, you don't, you don't feel it or see it, but over time it's like, Hey, how come this bearing wore out mm-hmm. a few weeks? So, you know, Doug White realized at the time, Hey, I can make a chromoly axle uh, at the same weight as a, cause you had to make the titanium axle so thick to keep it from uh, yeah. flexing that, Hey, let's just go to chromoly and mm-hmm. it's stiffer and it. Uh, it's lighter actually. Yeah. Steel so, isn't always a heavy thing. So, okay, I have a good question to ask you. You're the perfect person to ask this, but in 2006, I was coaching for USA Cycling and I was part of the track endurance program and Sarah Hammer was there and that was the year she won her first world title in the pursuit. And there were a lot of things about that ride that were just making me chew my nails off because there were a lot of little things that um, could have gone wrong and actually did go wrong on the day, but she still managed to win because she's an insanely talented and super uh skilled athlete but one of the interesting points that we had for discussion was her coach at the time was andy sparks and and when i went to take her bike to the initial uci check which was probably an hour before a race or something you know immediately i picked it up and noticed that both she was using mavic front and rear disc wheels and both of them had that bit of play lateral Mm -hmm. play so i'm picking up the bike and you can i mean if you're paying attention at all, as soon as you pick up the bike, you feel both wheels kind of just do this very right. subtle, you know, do, 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 do. and I spoke to Andy about it and he was like, yeah, I've, cons- I've spoken, consulted with a lot of bearing experts. And I think they had ceramic speed at the time. I don't recall the brand, but in any case, like they were advised that you want that little bit of play in there. Mm-hmm. And, and this is an ongoing discussion for customers. I also spoke to a zip rep a few years ago and he said their hub designs have gone through various iterations. Um, because I think at one point, basically what he told me is we had our hubs really dialed, but people wanted, the consumer wanted that perception to sideload the bearing. So they Mm -hmm. added in an option to do that. And it's almost like they have to give the market what they think they want sometimes and then make it it idiot proof somehow. Yeah. And I don't recall, I don't know whether the zip hubs, I don't, I don't agree with that philosophy necessarily from my perspective. It's like make the right product and then educate, but uh, I, uh, I don't recall if those zip bearings were cone and cup or, or cartridge. They were probably cartridge, but. I think they were, they were probably radial cartridge bearings. Yep. I, I'm pretty familiar with the setup in right. that scenario. So they were, but they did have a preload system for uh, radial bearings. Unfortunately, they, they used really small bearings. They were 6803s. Uh-huh. So they're super thin and, you know, they're right. And if, if you preload them, you're, you're going the, um, that's the wrong thing to do. Let's say I would rather have the play in the wheels if I was, you know, the track racer Okay. and to have them too tight because, uh, yeah, you're starting to bind the bearings in the incorrect manner. So the, the, the solution, the correct solution is to get cartridge bearings that are tighter CN. So we offer ABEC five bearings, for instance, okay. either what they call C3, which is the slightly looser fit, which is what Zip uses, or we have CN, which is a tighter fit um, <clears throat> that would eliminate that play and they would still spin. That's the correct solution. So, so I mean, I, you weren't there, but do you think that uh, that was that the right solution for them at the time, or is there any way for you to know? Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm familiar with those hubs from that time period because okay. we get calls all the time. Hey, my front, you know, it's really um, the rear wheel when you have a little bit of play, uh, you never really notice it. 
and it's fine. Yeah. Unless your brakes are rubbing or something, but that was with caliper brakes, <clears throat> but with the front wheel, you notice it if you're like screaming down a descent, it'll shift a little. There, it is uh, a real uh, uh, savvy rider that is a good descender will mm-hmm. notice the loose front wheel, um, especially at high speed. It's a little unnerving because you can imagine it's it's going in this plane, and you 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 lean a little bit, and then it slightly shifts. You know, it it kind of it'll jump. There'll be a place where it, it's very little, but you can, you can feel it. Wheel, you notice it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you especially if it's uh, uh, amplified, you don't want to, you don't want that mm-hmm. in the front wheel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's depending on it. So we have a lot, we sell a lot of aftermarket bearings, right. And uh, <clears throat> you're always chasing what the manufacturer does for their press fit. Because when you press the bearing into the hub, it it tightens up. You you actually take play out of the bearing because it squeezes it. Yeah, because it it presses into the hub and it compresses the outer race a little bit, right? Right. So you pre- press it into a front hub. Mm-hmm. Let's say you have a front hub and you and uh, with that's not laced up yet. You press the bearing in. Okay, now I got the right one. There's there's no play and it spins well. Mm-hmm. Now you lace the wheel up and the spokes pull the hub apart and now it's loose again. Hmm. So you got to check it when the whole bear wheel is, right. is laced up as well, because the, the lacing, the spokes actually pull the hub apart slightly, especially yep. on a front hub. Yep. And it, uh, it untensions or, uh, expands the, the hole if you're the <laughs> bearing bore yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for the bearing. And then yeah. it, you know, sometimes you press a bearing into a hub and then you lace it up and the bearings can fall out. And then you end up gluing them in, you know, <laughs> I mean, depending on, but, but, uh, so you have to look at, um, you know, the, the final assembled wheel and get yep. that. Yep. That's so interesting. I mean, it's the same lesson over and over again when I do fit work in the fit studio and people come in and they say, Oh, my hamstring hurts. Like we're not looking at the hamstring. We're looking at the body as a complete system. How, you know, neck bones connected to the hip bone, yeah. whatever. Well, hopefully your neck bone isn't actually connected to your hip bone. If it is, something went wrong indirectly. But the point is like, it's a system, right? Um, It's a fascial system and we have fascial tension from the tips of our toes all the way up to the crown of our head. And when we do an Eldoa pose, for example, which is a pose that puts the body under total stress, even the direction of the eyes influence fascial tension, Mm -hmm. right? So that's it's the same concept. When you build a wheel, you have to look at the complete wheel, the tension of the spokes, the strength of the rim, even the inflation of the tire. Right. And whether or not you're using yeah, an insert or not, and all those bits and pieces will impact the total tension on the wheel and the system. And that's so interesting. You say, as soon as you build it up, then it pulls the hub out. Yeah. 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 And hmm. even, even on it's, it's less so on most rear hubs because the flanges are usually a little, everything's a little thicker back there for the, yeah. the parts, but, uh, uh, it happens on the rear hub too. Uh, mm-hmm. and now you have disc brakes. So disc brakes, um, has introduced an entirely new, uh, um, uh, X factor, if you will, into the whole hub of, of those bearings having to deal with, uh, you know, front wheel used to just be kind of uh, passive, if you will. Right mm-hmm. now it's not, you know, you've got a big disc on there, you're flying down a hill and, you know, putting on an incredible amount of, uh, 
of uh, torque, introducing an incredible amount of torque into one side of the front wheel. Right. So to your point, that this, that affects the spokes, the rim, and, and the bearing down there, too. Uh, now you have heat, a heat component, too, in yep. bearings, which uh, certain designs out there that um, will remain nameless. Uh, you know, there's there's riders that uh, on downhills that were replacing the the front disc side bearing on every run. Wow. Because you just fry the grease right out of that thing. Huh. And uh, it was a pretty small bearing. And so they'd carry a, a whole tube of them. I started getting calls on this one bearing. It's like, what is going on with this thing? Hmm. You know, the manufacturer had made it a certain size that you couldn't change. You can't change the design of the hub. And so these riders would just carry a, a whole tube of bearings and pull it out after every run, put a hmm. new one in. I just read a comment the other day about someone in a world tour race. And he said that he had a spoke fail in his front wheel and he thought it was because it had overheated. Now I have no idea if that, if he knows what he's talking about, or maybe the Canucks told him that, that, but I read that too. I'm not sure that the spoke would get that hot. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, they, on a road bike too. Maybe I, if it I'm was not, a defective spoke, right? Yeah. I don't know. But there is, there is, I mean, to that point though, there is a, there is a more torque than people realize. Yeah. Actually a pro rider, you know, watching the Giro right now, you know, on, or any, any of these pro races and, you know, they're going to larger discs now because they realize, Oh, I can break later in the corners with a larger disc. And so, you know, they're on that front break pretty good. Right. Right. Uh, right. Okay. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of your product line. I know you guys are working. People think perhaps of Enduro as a company that makes bearings, but you're also making bottom brackets and headsets. And you've been making a lot of those products for a while. And one of the things that caught my eye, I was a few years ago, James Wong from Cycling Tips did a review of your XD15 bottom bracket. And he said he ran the thing for like a month on his townie riding to and from work every day with the bearings exposed, the seals pulled out and he never replenished the grease or anything and just ran it like that. So, I mean, is that for real? Like, how do you guys make a bearing that does that? That's cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's for real. And that's, years ago i actually talked to him recently i think it was i think he's had that bottom bracket for eight years it's still on a bike and still works okay and still has no seals on it so the material so most most bearings uh 99 of the bearings that are made or 98 is are chromium steel 52 100 steel and then the other material that people use is 440C stainless or 440 stainless. And uh, so um, 440 is not as hard as, as bearing steel and it's better for wet environments, but um, it's softer. So it doesn't last as long or it, it's got other challenges, if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, about not too many years before James got that bottom bracket, I had heard about this steel that was used for Airbus and uh, it's a, it's a super stainless steel that's called XD 15. And uh, the foundry is in France and long story short, uh, I, we fig I figured out how to purchase, purchase it because they're obviously uh, 
aerospace uses a lot of that material and they weren't really interested in selling any to, uh, you know, uh, for the sport industry. It's just like, you know, our, our entire production is just not interesting to them because they use so much more. The quantity is too low. Too low. Yeah. yeah. And it's difficult to work with in many ways, but I, I knew from reading about it that with ceramic bearings, especially you could run a ceramic bearing on this material with no lubricant, no grease with dirt in there, whatever sand, and it would not get destroyed. I knew enough about the material and I finally, uh, um, we, we figured out how to get it. So we started making bearings out of it, mm-hmm. trying it. And sure enough, the stuff is just, it, it is everything you you would want a bearing to be. It's the last bearing you need to put in your bike. You put it in and you never have to do any maintenance. Hmm. It gets better with time. It's crazy. It polish the, if you put dirt in the, the, ball, the ceramic ball actually starts ceram, uh, uh, polishing the race and it gets uh, smoother. Hmm. So uh, it's, it's different from other bearings chromium steel and 440c where you have to do maintenance with a ceramic ball especially you gotta you gotta always have grease in there once the grease is gone in any other ceramic hybrid bearing uh the steel races start to wear out so um we yeah the first bearings we made were were bottom bracket bearings and uh james got that bottom bracket and i said hey you want to test this thing and he goes sure you know and I said, it's going to last forever. And nobody ever believes that. And right. So he started using it and he, he called me up a few times. And he said, Hey, this thing is pretty bomber. You know, I've really been abusing it. He said, can I take the seals off mm-hmm. just about to be winter here in Colorado? Can I take the seals off and ride it all winter? And I said, yeah, give it a try. And yeah. then I kept fingers crossed, you know, oh man. and, uh, you know, he went through the winter and, uh, you know, every kind of, I think he threw everything at it and he was, he called me back, you know, six months later again and said, man, it's just keeps going. I'm going to write about it. So that's about when he wrote that article. But I think the picture shows like snow and dirt yeah. all over it and yeah. stuff. And I said, yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've, we, I've been giving them the cycle cross guys down in uh, Santa Cruz and, and uh, you know, they'll ride in the sand and uh, literally, when you get the bike and take the chain off and you go turn the crank and it's like like a coffee grinder, you know, because mm-hmm. it's sand in the bearing and you just blow it out with compressed air. And I wasn't even re-greasing them because we just really wanted to see where it could go. Mm-hmm. And back to the riders and one of the guys that would just chew through bottom brackets like crazy, you know, every month, another bottom bracket. Uh, he had one bottom bracket. He was sponsored by Specialized, and the bottom bracket lasted three frames. Mm. And actually, I still have. I finally got it back from him. I have it on my desk, um, but it last. It outlasted three frames. You know, usually you have how many bottom brackets per frame in the lifetime. This was yep. How many frames per, per bottom, bottom bracket? Frame. Yeah, that's cool. And especially in this day and age, where we've got so many carbon frames that have press fit bearings. And you don't know what the tolerances are on that system, right? I think those are the biggest criticisms of press fit sure. type uh, frame construction because you put the bearing in there and if things aren't aligned perfectly, then you're just introducing more challenge to the system, right? But Yeah, so that's the other thing we do is we develop this torque tight bottom bracket system that 
the cups, every solution we have for a press fit bike is not press fit. It's a mechanical thread together fit. Mm -hmm. So it not only keeps the bearings in alignment, so they spin freely, but, uh, you know, eliminates creak and, uh, and, uh, any kind of noise you might, uh, get, which is probably the first thing that nobody wants to have is creaking or it's a maddening thing. So our torque tight system, the it's designed for every specific setup that you possibly think of for crank on crank set and, uh, the, uh, bottom bracket standard of the bike. So, it always puts the bearings right out at the crank arms. We don't use any um, adapters or mm-hmm. you know, plastic plugs or aluminum plugs. Yep. The bearings are right out at the crank arms and um, the the uh, bottom bracket shell threads together. So not only do you have these bearings that are bomb proof, they probably could go into your uh, the other systems without a torque tight system and last they, they would last fine, but they won't make any noise this way. And you're guaranteed of the, the best alignment and smoothest rolling. Right. System. Right. So, okay. So no glue, you know, not, you know, eliminating glue and PTFE paste and all those. Yeah. Bits. All those bits. So, okay. Just to rewind for one second, it, it sounds like the breakthrough with the XD 15 was really in the hardness of the races. Is that correct? Because it's so a lot of people have used ceramic hybrid bearings for a long time, which means, correct me if I'm wrong again, it's a ceramic ball with a stainless race, either the 440 or the chromium steel. But the problem is the ball is so much harder than the race that as soon as there's any imperfection in that system, the ball just, just basically gouges the race to death and that kills the whole system. Is that kind of what's happening? Is that how most ceramic bearings are failing? It's close. Yeah, it's not the hardness of the race. The hardness is actually the same as 440C steel. The, it's the toughness. So this is something okay. in steel they talk about sometimes. Um, it's it's just extremely durable. And and how that happens or why that happens is um, go into the weeds here on the technical part. So you take a really high quality stainless steel they, and then they remelt it. And at the very high temperature and pressure, they introduce nitrogen into the steel. It's called a nitrogen steel. And um, what the nitrogen does is chemically change the uh, steel at that point. And all of the carbons in the steel are homogenous. They're peppered throughout the steel. So, and then when it's cooled, those things don't move the carbon and what, what does that do? Well, in all steels, you have these carbon um, chains and places where there's too many carbons together. It's almost impossible to avoid. And that's when the ball rolls over these points, they're, they're brittle. Uh-huh. And that's when, when the, like you get a broken little divot in the, at a micro level in the steel. And that begins the process of galling yep. or stalling. Okay. And um, it's like a pothole in the road. Yep. And as the ball keeps rolling over it, it gets bigger, bigger and, and bigger. bigger. Yeah. So okay. So in XD15, that never happens. It mm. just, uh, the material is homogenous mm-hmm. and the ball just continues to uh, polish the material rather than um, okay. stalling doesn't happen. 
basically. So the analogy that's coming to mind is driving a car on a normal highway with, you know, undulations in the in the road surface and potholes and imperfections versus driving on the track in the speed racer movie where it's like this perfect smooth, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is that so that's the XZ15. It's basically the speed racer racetrack. Yeah, it is. It I mean when you look at one that um we we grind it, we grind the races pretty fine, but um after it's the only bearing that gets better with life. It's it's crazy. Mm -hmm. If you look at it under a microscope after a year or two of riding the ball path where mm -hmm. the ball's been going, mm -hmm. it actually gets smoother mm -hmm. and it, um, you know, mirror finish. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's just unusual with uh, dirt, anything in there. So, you know, most bearings, when you take them out of the box, the, uh, ceramic hybrid bearing, the best day is the first day you put them in your bike and, mm -hmm. you know, race day or whatever, but then they, you know, over time they start to go. Yeah. Performance declines. Downhill. Yeah. They start to get rougher and so this bearing you put it in first day and it it actually slightly gets better mm -hmm. over time yeah which um right now we're doing a bunch of testing on all bottom bracket bearings um because we have some new designs and uh we're checking things and uh we're finding we we finally hooked up a <clears throat> figured out <clears throat> wattage testing on our on our test machine so we're going to have a little story about it but in the testing the and we're talking very small amount of watts, you yeah. know, but it improves the, the wattage soak or whatever you want to call it mm. improves with XD 15 compared to any other bearing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting parallel to think about. So often it seems like people are concerned about, you know, the, the weight of their wheels and they're thinking, mm. you know, and the old, way of thought is like lighter is always better. Right. So they're thinking yeah. about these things that are really potentially marginal gains. When you look at the physics of, of wheel weight, depending on the demands of your event, what kind of wheel, what kind of race you're talking about, there's different ways to approach that subject. But uh, a lot of times in coaching, people are focused also on gaining three Watts in this interval or five Watts in this interval or optimizing the perfect wattage distribution in a time trial over a small rolling hill. And they're questioning, should I be doing 450 Watts over this one minute hill or 430? And is it going to make or break the entire TT? And these are marginal gains, ways of thinking, you know, which helmet should I pick or bits like that. But really in my experience as a coach, most people would be better served by constantly re-examining and perfecting the fundamentals of their training. Like, are you getting enough sleep? Are you mm -hmm. drinking enough water before you go out on your four hour ride? And sure. this is the way I'm thinking about bearings. Like, people are picking these bottom brackets and it goes in their bike and maybe they don't think about it, or maybe they just pick the lightest one because, you know, a ceramic bearing weighs less than another steel bearing, which what we're talking about four grams of difference or something in a bearing max. But then meanwhile, they're giving up all this durability, right? Yeah. Because the bearings over thousands and thousands of revolutions are of course not performing as well as they should, or maybe during moments of really high torque, the bearing is warping and it's robbing them of that moment of torque during the peak phase of each individual power stroke. That's how I'm thinking about it. And so it's kind of, a, it's funny how the same thread kind of weaves its way through equipment choice, coaching choices, like make sure your fundamentals are dialed and reinforce that worry about the, the marginal gains are things that we can worry about at the, the world tour level perhaps, but only if all those yeah, other boxes are ticked. I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, uh, so you know, 
uh, the, the way I approach it too. Uh, so we're enduro bearing. So it's always been to me about longer life and better, um, you know, less maintenance, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. But that uh, has come to um, some efficiency things like some of the bottom brackets, for instance, we've been testing that are the lightest weight ones on the market didn't even make it to uh, one is it failed at 300,000 cycles, which our, our benchmark is a million cycles. So think about that. It didn't even make it 30, 30%, maybe yeah. 30% of the journey. And the thing feels like a pepper mill when you grind a pepper mill, you know, already. <clears throat> so it was lightweight. Well, you, you got to, most of us aren't Tour de France, you know, pro riders. Well, maybe you're close. You're up there, <laughs> you're, but most of us are not. So we're not changing our bottom bracket mm. or we don't have a, a, you know, people changing all our equipment out before every race. So right. most of us, we ride a gravel race and then we want to go do another one in a year. And we don't necessarily change our bottom bracket out every year. Mm -hmm. So like if I go do this gravel race a year or a year and a half from now, I'm hoping the bottom bracket spins as well as it did, or, or in our case, better than when I put it in. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, not be rough. And then to your point on, on really lightweight hubs, just for rear hubs, I didn't do the testing, but one of my customers did on uh, rear hubs. He set up this pretty cool test a few years ago and showed strains of rear hubs, lightweight ones compared to ones with, stronger axles and larger bearings mm -hmm. uh, and uh it's pretty eye-opening on the the torque and how in his uh uh testing they were locking up like let's say a, a real strong rider would be riding up a real you know 10 percent grade or something like that and during pedal strokes the the hub is actually you know going to bright red and lock the bearings locking yeah. up and grinding yeah. as you're going up the hill. That, yep. So, yeah. you know, anything you did to lose 20, 30, 50 grams mm. is completely, uh, counterproductive. You're going the opposite yeah. Direction. Going the wrong direction, maybe in more ways than you think. Yeah. Yeah. It, that reminds me that whole discussion around the thinking of the bike and the system as a giant spring reminds me of a um, an email that I read from Leonard Zinn, or I guess it's on his forum on VeloNews, you know, he gets a lot of tech questions about whether or not you can use a rotor 13 speed drivetrain with a oh, eight yeah. speed cassette and all this weird stuff. But, um, one of the topics he was talking about was this is several years ago. And the conversation was right around the time that cyclocross bikes were really evolving and cyclocross was exploding. So this probably was like, oh, eight. 2010, somewhere in there, it was just doing this in the States, like up steep upward angle. And all these manufacturers were jumping on board and coming out with these crazy cross bikes. And of course, mm -hmm. um, you know, around that time they started making bikes with these huge bottom bracket surface areas to make everything stiffer. And then there became more clearance issues between the chain stays and the bottom bracket and the tires and all that. And this guy wrote in and he was like, well, I don't really get it because we're riding these super stiff frames and manufacturers keep making them stiffer, stiffer, stiffer and bigger headset bearings, bigger bottom bracket bearings and BB 30 and all that. And, but at the same time, we're just letting more and more pressure out of our tires. And if the whole bike is a spring, then mm -hmm. how does that matter? Like, why are we making these super stiff frames just to add, take two PSI out of the frame more or out, uh, out of the tire? And 
I thought about it quite a bit, and I think it's an interesting question. I think that in terms of advertising lexicon, there's always this talk about lighter and stiffer and more aero. And I think that misleads people who aren't engineers to believe that the stiffest possible platform would be ideal. And full disclaimer, I'm not a, trained as an engineer. I don't play one on TV or the internet. But I do think there's a lot more to the springiness of a frame and a system than we give credit for. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say to your point about bearings specifically, and and all the way back to, you know, when you were making bearings for um, rear suspension uh, at Fisher, if the bike isn't tracking cleanly, that's going to, it's going to impact your handling choices, right? Mm -hmm. Or same thing with the front wheel bearing. If the front wheels is sliding back and forth in the axle, even if it's, you know, half a millimeter, you're going to feel that. And the nervous system, the rider will on some level compensate for it, especially if they're a good handler, maybe not even mm -hmm. consciously, probably not consciously, but we want to minimize the amount of, for example, wheel flex out of plane from the front wheel and rear. We want to minimize the amount of flex of the bottom bracket out of plane from the front and rear hub, in my opinion, during a really aggressive moment of cornering, because mm -hmm. those being in plane is what makes the bike track predictably. And when the tire is what's deflecting, being the mm -hmm. furthest point from those, um, from those origins of force, or I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It probably isn't, but we can, we can sort of feel that we feel the deflection in the casing and the tire, especially when you're used to riding a particular tire, yeah. a particular pressure in certain conditions, right? We, and yeah. this, this is what's fascinating about the human nervous system is we, it does all this. The vast majority of this is not conscious. It's right. just the rider does testing and they come back and they go, I don't know, something's weird. I, the front of this bike is screwed up. And then the, the mechanic looks at it and they go, oh, the front wheels got play in the bearings. Mm -hmm. So I think that whole equation is really fascinating. And I don't know that I have, this is so much of a question, more just a comment, but, um, yeah, I think that, that I guess what I'm emphasizing is the fact that if your bearings, you know, if you're choosing super light axles everywhere and you've got all this mm -hmm. flex in the system, then you're introducing potentially handling complications into your world, but also just as we pointed out, you might have a hub that's, that's binding at certain points during high torque moments when you're really trying to smash the pedals coming out of a corner, you know, whether that's in a criterium or in a cross country race or whatever. Right. Right. Well, and I, I you know, to your point, you want to take variables out of the system that you have to compensate for. Mm. Um, you know, that's all energy. If you're in a, at the top level, if you're a racer, if you have to comp, comp sure, the human body, like you said, can compensate it for it. And you're not even aware of it. A, a, a good rider will just take care of it, but that uses up a slight amount of energy. Like you go into a corner and okay, you got to anticipate that the wheel's going to flop a little mm -hmm. and then you're so, so that that's energy right there to, to, you know, take care of that. Yeah. Uh, and you can do it, but it's, it's another little thing. So if it's fixed, you, it's like, oh, you notice the improvement. Oh, I don't have to think about that anymore. Yep. And your body or your unconscious mind isn't thinking about it anymore. You just put it into a turn and you know where it's mm -hmm. going to go. Yep. So it's predictability and, yeah. and handling and thing. But yeah, going up a hill, a really steep hill with a, with a hub that's, um, you, you would never feel it or you wouldn't be aware of it. Right. Because it's, it's such a small amount of wattage sap you know, it's a couple of Watts, you in, know, but, in each pedal stroke, but that adds up really, but quickly. that adds up, Yeah, but it won't, it won't necessarily show up in somebody's test machine where they're just, you know, they're, 
there, there's not a, a pedal stroke yes. power force um, into the equation. It's just on a machine. Oh, these things are the same as, mm-hmm. as these. But, well, you're not testing it in in the real world of, of how it's actually being uh, utilized. Yeah. So a perfect. And it's only a, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, it's only a split second that it happens. Yeah. So you a fraction to, of a second, yeah. probably, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you'd have to catch it really quickly with, uh, we probably don't have equipment that can capture that, I would guess, certainly not in the real world. So it's a perfect example of the limitations of a lab study and how it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily translate to, because any motor you put on a bearing when you're, when you're doing high revolution testing or wattage testing on it or resistance testing or durability testing, right? All these different potential categories, it's going to be a constant torque load, right? Right. And whereas in the real world, that's not how humans apply power. So we have the flex of the total spring that's leveraging on that bearing. Um, mm-hmm. that also makes me think about one little weird loophole. Uh, I guess is how I might describe it, but you know, the only bearing that hasn't gotten a lot bigger in the last, what, 12, 15 years, maybe more are pedal bearings mm-hmm. and right. And that's because manufacturers, everyone eventually realized like, Hmm, if we make bigger bearings, they're more durable, generally speaking. I mean, as you've discussed, there's a lot that goes into that, but mm-hmm. bigger contact area, bigger dot ball diameter distribute force a little more effectively perhaps. So, but pedals, we can't do that because if you make the bearings really big under the foot, then you increase the stack height too much. Um, and you increase rocker torque. And I think I've played a lot with this in my fitting and I've got a few weird gizmos and experiments I've been messing around with, but I think rocker torque is actually greatly underestimated. It really has an impact on how a rider pedals from what I've seen. And I've got mm-hmm. some good personal experience to go to support that statement. But, uh, the only, the clever way around this, of course, was the Durace AX road pedal, which was way ahead of its time and had other yeah, challenges, yeah. right? But if you move the bearing to the end of the crank arm, you can make it as big as you want. Uh, I don't know if you have thoughts on that and why, I don't know. It's just convention that pedal manufacturers haven't gone that way. Speedplay tried to solve it with a, with a cylindrical um, roller bearing, yeah. right? Are the, well, No, we're on the same page because I've thought about that for a while and I've worked with a couple of manufacturers, but uh on that idea of just putting the bearing in the crank arm mm-hmm. and then have an axle come out. Um, but we're so stuck on nine sixteenths inch, which that goes back a little ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little ways. Like nineteen oh three, right? Something like oh, that. Oh, I think it's eighteen hundreds, yeah. Oh wow. That nine sixteenths pedal. Wow. Yeah. We we gotta get into the data book on that one, but uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, why not put the, uh, I was working with a manufacturer over 10 years ago and we were testing it actually of putting a 6902 bearing right into the end of the crank arm, mm-hmm. uh, angular contact 6902, and then just a pedal spindle that yeah. that came out of that. And we were looking at a double row in there and we'd done, yeah, it was really durable, really stiff and uh, less, uh, yeah, and then your foot is right on the axle. You don't have to worry about the bearing in there. So, because the that's the whole thing, right? Yeah, is the ball of your foot as close to the axles as yep. possible. Yep. So, um, but it they realized that it would take a partnership with Shimano and SRAM yep. and a pedal maker, and that's a, that's a big ask. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I agree with you. I think that's a better idea. Mm. Uh, mostly in pedal bearings, um, there's a ball bearing. There's, there's usually two or three 
bearings in a, in a pedal. One is a, a needle bearing or a bushing, yep. which that there's, you know, they're not the best spinning bearings all the time, but yep. they take the load. And then you need a ball bearing to, to take up the side to side, uh, you know, uh, force. Mm-hmm. So there's usually one very small ball bearing and then either one or two bushings and needle bearings in there. Yep. Um, yep. So bushings. The best one I, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay. So I have a question about bushing. I mean, a bushing is basically just a cylinder of stuff that spins well. It's like, it's not a ball, right? And it has yeah. a race and on either end, an external and internal race. But what bothers me about bushings is that you have to make it the durometer of the bushing basically will allow flex in the entire system. Same problem. So if you make yeah. it more flexible, in theory, it would, it would spin a little better, but then it's going to compromise the ball bearings on either end or, or one end a lot more quickly. Am I thinking about that? Right. Like, well, plain, plain bearings, they're called plain, plain bearings or bushings. Uh, they, they just have a lot of surface area. So you have a lot more friction with them. Okay. And then you're right because when they flex, they bind at the ends. Yep. Uh, they bind at the end if if the axle flexes, um, and then you um, you make them longer so they take that load better. But then there's more friction right. involved. Right. So you're you're always chasing. You know, you're just chasing this very little. We're talking like you know pedal bearings. Like the most popular one we we supply is six millimeters by twelve. So you know it's such a small bearing because you're looking for the, um, to get your foot as close to the axle as possible. Yeah. And, and then you're putting a bearing with rolling, trying to put a bearing with rolling elements in between. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a big ask. So, um, there, there's some designs are better than others out there. The, some people use max needle bearings, which we also supply. And those for my money, um, solve the problem the best because you have rolling elements that um there's a lot of them but they they tend to last a long time and spin smoothly over that time okay so you usually have a needle bearing with either like a ball bearing to take up the side to side load because you got to account for 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 holding it together needle bearing radial load purely radial yeah so it sounds like a bushing does bushing both spin and slide then by definition or does it theoretically mostly spin it's just sliding it's just it's only sliding. sliding it's yeah. all sliding always so that's why sliding. it's so slow because it's just two surfaces moving against each other whereas a roller uh, uh any other bearing a needle or a ball or a cartridge which is just a series of balls is rolling is that exactly accurate there's always yeah. a rolling element right that's the difference between a a, a, a plain bearing and a, uh, a precision bearing is the there's rolling elements yep. inside Okay. Yeah. Okay. You, uh, you went to school for mechanical engineering. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Where'd you go? Uh, San Francisco state. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, for, uh, industrial design actually was my degree, Mm -hmm. industrial technology and design. It was, uh, kind of a, it's a combination MIT degree that MIT came up with it. It's a combination of mechanical engineering and business. So, uh, cause I wanted to start, I always thought I had an idea to start my own business. I didn't think I could, but mm-hmm. I had that idea at the time. And, and so I wanted to know the business end of things too. Okay. You know, accounting, yeah, all, all the things you got to know. All those things Check that creative geniuses usually don't pay attention to. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Cool. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I just wanted to reverse to one other question. If you still have time, if you're good. Yeah, sure. You made a comment earlier and we'd spoken about this at some other point as well. Like, I think there's a perception in the bike industry that we, uh, we pedal really quickly, right? I mean, man, I pedal really quickly, <laughs> but in the bearing world, bearings that are used for cycling are actually very slow moving relative to the machine world. So right. maybe that was part of your insight and, and part of your learning process from the sounds of it. When you got into forklift bearings, you realized how applicable they were to cycling and sports, right? So maybe you can talk about the, the way different bearings are designed to, uh, to approach those two applications. We've touched on it a bit with the grease and the grease, uh, ruining the engine, right? So, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. So I, you just mentioned school and I, uh, school's great. And I had to do that and get all the tools I needed to start the company. But my other school was when we started the business, we were looking way, for ways to make money. And one of the things we were doing was buying surplus bearings and reselling them in the Oakland area because a lot of manufacturing companies at that time were going out of business and they were just so long story short, at one point we bought a 20 foot container filled with bearings going back before World War II. And wow. we had to take them all out. They're all in the boxes, clean them up. Or, you know, you, most of them are still in their wax uh, plastic case. I mean, from World War II, sometimes you get them in sardine cans huh. and they're still in the oil and everything, but they're still huh. good. Okay. You know, so they're well preserved. So I got a, a big education on all these types of bearings I had never seen for Marine, for submarines, you know, it's Bay Area. So you can imagine all the military equipment and uh, things that these things were for automotive. And so I just, I looked at every type of bearing and it's mind blowing how many different types of bearings there are in the world. You know, I, but what was great for me was you'd see this thing and go, wow, this is cool. You could use, you know, I, I could see using this for certain applications. Uh, look at this retainer. It's made out of bronze and it entirely encapsulate, encapsulates the balls. You know, things that people have done through history mm -hmm. on mechanical engineering. And it's, it's mind-blowing, especially in the military, because they go, they're looking for every type of uh, creative solution. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of good brains. So, yeah, I went through tens of thousands of bearings, taking them out, looking at them, repackaging them. And I got a huge uh, education there on, on what exists in the world and what I can use. Sorry, mm -hmm. I think I lost my way on, on the answer <laughs> to the question, but uh, that just came up yeah. with um, as far as um, with what I found was extremely helpful for me to see. You got you know you got to know what's out there first before you start inventing, inventing because if yeah. you don't have the history of it, yeah, you you're just reinventing, you know, and, and you're spinning your wheels. You got to, you know, mm -hmm. if it's already there, why reinvent, why reinvent it? Yeah. yeah. Those who yeah. do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, okay. So then maybe you can talk a bit about that, how that practical experience translated into the specifically the difference in industrial design and machine bearings for cycling. Uh, What's the, so well, the, oh, right. We were going back to speed. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the fastest, any jockey wheel bearings, you know, a couple hundred RPM, those are the fastest ones. Bottom bracket, we all know how fast we spin. You can figure it out yourself how fast. Even wheel bearings are not going much more than, uh, you know, 200 RPM max down a 
pretty fast descent, mm-hmm. you know? So that's slow moving because in the world of bearings, they're going thousands of RPM. So what you're talking about with bicycle bearings is very low RPM, mm-hmm. 200 RPM. Let's use that as a benchmark, hundred to 200 and a uh, high loads. Okay. And all of the bearings are right on the edge of everybody wants to save weight. That's been the whole thing right. since the beginning, right? And uh, so they're right on the edge of working or not working in many cases, in many designs for hubs, bottom brackets, and so forth. And we can see that right now with e-bikes, because now that e-bikes are in and uh, they're using the same hubs, the yep. same bottom brackets, the same suspension pivot bearings, and now we're seeing uh, the, they failed so fast because a guy who could maybe only ride 20 miles on his mountain bike and then maybe do it once a week can ride, you know, 50 miles easy on his mountain bike way yeah. harder. He can, he can ride like a top pro level speed and, on technical trails and the yeah. bike weighs so much more. So there's all this increase in load because an e-bike weighs 45 exactly. pounds instead of 25 or whatever. Right. Exactly. So now mm. what I'm seeing and what I'm getting from manufacturers is, Hey, Matt, our axles are breaking on these hubs. Yep. Uh, bearings are wearing out. Can you design a bearing for, we got to redo our, our e-bike yep. uh, hubs because they're, they're not the same as pedal bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. that's how we know that those designs for those are right on the edge because you add a little bit more power, or let's say a pro level of power, and now things are wearing out too fast for the consumer yep. to take. Yep. They're, they're get, those manufacturers are getting back feedback from their customers saying, hey, I, you know, I rode this bike for three months and the rear hub is hosed. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Oh, we got to improve that hub. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. That's really interesting. I know you got your tandem in the background there. Um, it makes me think of tandem track cycling. You know, there used to be tandem sprints were a thing at the world championship level. And eventually they just canceled it because the crashes were catastrophically bad. And there were so many instances where people were out there racing these tandems. And we were talking a sprint cyclist who typically they weigh 185 to 210 pounds, huge muscular dudes, like distant cousin to me in this fact that we could both call a cyclist barely in the same family. Right. But there's two of these guys on one bike and they're riding around and they're riding on a zip 440, you know, carbon front wheel that's made for a hundred for me to go climb a hill like none of it made any sense and then you're watching these guys just ripping through not only all that weight and all that speed they can sprint those guys get going on the tandem and they're going 65k an hour easy and then you add the radial torque of going through a corner on a velodrome and that wheel just sometimes the wheels would literally just fold under them at speed like no they didn't hit anything they didn't hit the other other team nothing it just the thing just couldn't even take the raw force and just folds collapse like a potato chip that's well, where once, it caused a lot of problems <laughs> once that wheel i mean all the load carrying capacity of the wheels is in a radial force is yep. weird and then when you get that thing in an axial loaded uh situation on a bank and everything yeah all of a sudden the the power or, or the uh, load the load carrying uh, architecture is off let's say eight degrees or something, yep. there's nothing. It, it's suddenly maybe the, the uh, load carrying capacity has gone down 50 or a hundred percent. And it just, that's the end of the that's whole it. thing. 
Yeah. But yeah, to your point, uh, I, when I, I worked at Bianchi, uh, after, uh, Fisher. Yeah. <laughs> I think back. Yeah. And, uh, we were Mario Cipollini was on the GBMG team when I was there. And, uh, we were, I was looking at his bikes at the factory and, Italy and and uh, they were building super strong front wheels for him you know uh, mm-hmm. 14 gauge you know 36 hole for Mario because mm-hmm. you know they said when he was when he he'd sprint and you'd see him you know a lot of uh, that guy had a lot of upper body force mm-hmm. uh, strength and uh, and and heavy bars and fork he had a special fork because the the torque he could throw into a front end of a bicycle in a sprint was just beyond what most of the other riders were doing. And they did not want, you know, a wheel failure. So for him, it wasn't, there was nothing lightweight about Mario's bikes. I remember Mm. now we have carbon and things. So you can, you know, carbon, you can uh, engineer it in and you don't see it and and save the weight, but uh, yeah, weight saving is, is something to look at, but it's not obviously always the most important thing to, to consider. You, you need, you need the strength there. Yeah. You got to get, you got to get to the finish line. <laughs> Normally the strength and durability, right? There's an order of operations in that engineering equation that yeah. people I uh, think don't always respect. Yeah. I mean, I learned that lesson as a young rider. I was like, I'm going to buy these super light wheels. I remember finishing a road race in California when I was 19 or 20 and it was, a uh, an uphill finish. And I remember all the spokes had just lost tension in the front wheel just because I used some wiener Araya rim that weighed nothing. And the thing just became a noodle. And I was coming to the line and it was like the bike was collapsing in slow motion. I was watching the wheel hit the brakes and I was going, Oh, okay. I'm really glad this happened on the uphill to the line and not the descent. It was got away with a little bit of a hall pass there on that one, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, It sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, well, cool. Uh, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you taking time to unpack all these uh, technical questions on bearings. Hopefully my audience found it as interesting as I do. I'm, I'm a bike dork, so I love geeking out on this stuff. Oh, me too. Uh, my pleasure. This, my, this is the best part of my day cool. talking about. It. Oh, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> um, were there other things you want to add, tell people about anything else about your current product line or what else would you like to educate? Well, us on? Pretty excited. Next two weeks, we're going to be um, delivering these uh, our new uh, bottom brackets, max hit bottom brackets. Um, we'll finally uh, we're almost finished with them. It's taken a little longer because of production process, but uh, mm-hmm. so it's a concept where you know usually in a bottom bracket bearing or a headset bearing, you have a, a steel bearing pressed into an aluminum cup. And then that threads or presses into the bike. Mm-hmm. So these, the, the, the whole bearing, it's one complete steel lightweight unit, but with much larger balls because the cup is the outer race. Right. And so uh, the uh, balls roll on that. And um, again, it's, it's about longevity and, and which turns into watt savings mm-hmm. and efficiency. Um, but I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, there, uh, you know, you know, you won't, there's no interface between aluminum and steel for, for creaking and, uh, you get a much more, uh, uh, better spinning long lasting bearing out of it. Mm-hmm. So much so we're offering a lifetime warranty on it, which I always get nervous about lifetime warranty. What, 
what lifetime warranty? But these things, they're, they're just breaking the records on our machines for, uh, for uh, longevity. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's pretty fun. That's what keeps me uh, excited about uh, the, you know, the cycling industry and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, what we're doing at Enduro. So it's cool. fun. When you get to make those moments where you actually make forward progress and um, give the consumer an end product that they can really enjoy more. Cause that's, that's why most people are in the sport, right. Is to just go, like you said, go do their gravel race or their grand fondo, or just go ride yeah. gravel or, or mountain bikes or road bikes on the weekends with their buddies. And they don't want to mess with stuff. Like we, it's 2022, exactly. we're all getting, you know, email asteroids constantly and dealing, doing all the things and we want to enjoy our sports. So when we have bearings on our bikes that we don't have to worry about in service, then it's just one less thing to mess with. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to have to get out there with your buddies and then you start going up a hill and it's going, rah, 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 you know, which we've <laughs> all experienced and just ride your bike and it do the things it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Outstanding. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, checking out the new products. Thanks for telling us about that stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for having us on and uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Rick, did you want to add anything to our our ramblings here? Uh, no, it was wonderful ramblings. Um, so thank you for sharing on both sides. Yeah. And uh, folding wheels under 400 pounds of riders doesn't sound like a good day, but, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it, it was an interesting story nonetheless. I think the only thing I would add is um, we're launching uh, our new website, um, and it's actually live today or when this podcast will be airing. And I would encourage everyone to go to EnduroBearings.com and click on the technical section, the technology section, because there's thousands of words that dive even deeper into the subject of bearing design and how Matt and the Enduro team have used their knowledge to to make bicycle bearings that are actually specific to each location on the bike with unique seals and greases uh, that make make each individual bearing perform at its best and the reasons why they're done they were designed and built that way so uh, for bike geeks and bearing geeks the new website is um is is just a a wonderful place to bury yourself for 30 minutes to an hour cool good playground yeah okay thanks colby thank you guys Thanks yeah, for- thank you very much, Colby. Very good, ladies and gentlemen. You have reached the end of the podcast. And at the end of the rainbow, there is a pot of gold. That is the discount code I will offer you. If you wish to make a purchase on the website, cycling.endurobearings.com, I will put the link to the website in the show notes in case you want to go find it there directly. But you can also just type in cycling.endurobearings.com and you'll get there. When you fill your cart with all your goodies, you're going to use a coupon code, which is Colby Podcast in all lowercase letters. That's Colby Podcast in all lowercase letters. C-O-L-B-Y-P-O-D-C-A-T-C-A-S-T. Please spell it correctly. And this will get you 35% off of all their products. Now, there are a few conditions. One, use per customer. 
Also, only the first 50 users can take advantage of this offer. So it is time sensitive in two ways. First of all, you gotta be one of the first 50 users. And secondly, you have to use it before December 31st of 2022, which is a long way from now. I expect that 50 users will probably burn through this before we get to December 31st, but you never know. So if you wanna take advantage of any of Enduro Bearings awesome products and uh, install bearings that you can set and forget for a long time, forever, then I advise you go to cycling.endurobearings.com, enter the coupon code ColbyPodcast at checkout, and that will give you 35% off. Thank you, Rick and Matt, for this generous offer. And go forth and make all the pedalings. Remember, it is always best to pedal consciously and train intelligently than the alternatives. Thanks for listening. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, This is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. 
that helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.